So you're listening to Ergo, right? But you want Ergo and all your other podcasts to sound good. That's why you should be listening on Overcast. Overcast is a better podcast app than whatever you're using right now, unless it's Overcast. Get Overcast for free on the App Store. Let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Let's go back. Hey. Well, hello. We are here. This is Ergo. I am Damon. I'm Kiss. We are going back. This is another one of our once a month series of going back through the Ergo archives and giving you special conversations that you may have missed but need not to miss out on. Yes, we are. As part of our Go Back series, we're going back in the archives to episode 34 with Fatima Oscar. Fatih is a poet, screenwriter, director, artist. She hadn't done all those things when we talked to her back on episode 34, but she's been busy since then. Uh, one of my favorite conversations that we've had, you can find Fatih on all social media at Oscar the Crouch. All right, y'all, let's go back to our conversation with Fatih from 2016. Hello, world. It is Ergo Radio. We are here, and I'm excited to be alive. Uh, just a quick update of the pre-show talk. I just mm-hmm. want everybody to know that the, the world are my pajamas, and that's pretty much all I'm going to say. I'm going to leave it there. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in this week. That's all we got for you. We're going to play an hour of music. No, this is uh, Ergo on WHPK 88.5, ErgoRadio.com. What we do here is we showcase strong young voices from Chicago and beyond each week, a live long-form interview and a performance from an amazing person reshaping the culture of the city for the better and the more equitable. We have a very special guest here this week, but before we get to that, a couple community announcements. Dame, you got anything? Um, Like, you know, it's the election and all that. So <laughs> as much as like, I hate the, the sentence, get out and vote, like people have to go out and vote and mm-hmm. and. Hold the crooks accountable. But Damon, when is election day? The election day is the Tuesday, um, <laughs> March the 15th. Uh, but y'all can vote early. So go do that. Uh, always shout out to Lighthouse, 1373 is 53rd. And tomorrow, that's Friday, whatever that date is. But yeah. tomorrow <laughs> uh, at uh, the Silver Room on 53rd, uh, as part of Louder Than a Bomb, Nate Marshall, uh, Ergo alum, and Kevin Koval are doing a reading from... Their new chapbook, 1989, The Number. I'll be there making sure that nothing bursts on fire and nothing implodes or explodes. Uh, come through. It's free. It's going to be a great show uh, tomorrow night. That's Friday, March 11th. And of course, come to Lighter Than a Bomb over the next couple of weeks. Uh, yeah. Anything? Any less? Nah, any man, says, All right. Let's get into it. <laughs> cool. <laughs> Damn, came in no patience today. <laughs> let's get to it. <laughs> So we have a very special guest here. Uh, she's a poet and photographer and artist and teacher and... And nice person. Just like, <laughs> like, like put that on your business card. Like, I'm nice. One of, one, one of the coolest, one of the nicest. We have Fatih Askar here. How are you this I'm morning? I'm good, you guys. I'm glad to be here. So thanks for Yay. having me. <laughs> how, how, how is the world treating you and you treating it on this day and it's, this week? It's good. I'm... um. It's like weird because it's so warm. So I'm like really happy, but it's also like really frightening because I woke up and I was like, dang, it's like super warm in March. So are we going to die? Like what's going to happen to us? To answer your question, yes, we, we are <laughs> going to die. I can say that for sure. Eventually. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, in the in the prep for, for our guest every week, we put together, of course, on the website, like a little page. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for the right image to use for you. <laughs> um, and one of the things that I really liked was when I when I just Google imaged your name, I saw a lot of photos of other folks who I love and respect <laughs> what they do. And like some of that is because of your work as a photographer, which mm-hmm. we'll get to. But some of it I think is also just like because you consistently are connecting with and making things and supporting and building friendships mm-hmm. with beautiful amazing people both here in the city and across the country so Mm -hmm. that's just like a cool little like glimpse Mm -hmm. for those who don't know like who you are Mm -hmm. um but specifically with some of the photography that you've done um 
you want to just talk a little bit about like what are a couple of the main projects? Maybe let me love me, mm-hmm. stuff like that. What what you do, and we'll we'll cover all the poetry. We'll do the whole thing. We got an hour. We got plenty of time. <laughs> yeah. So I um as a photographer, I'm a self taught photographer. So I basically um went to st- study abroad, and um my uncle gave me a camera, and it was really awesome because it was just like me and my camera traveling and I I just learned how to use it on the fly out there. I've never taken a photography class, never really, um, really learned some of those fundamental skills. Mm -hmm. And so as a, I think like as an artist in general, um, that's my, my MO always. Mm -hmm. Like I, I have never taken a formal poetry class. Like I've been in poetry workshops, but, um, it's not like, I don't, you know, I don't really necessarily have that same background as a lot of people do an academic background in these kind of art skills. Um, and so really what I just do is I think about the kind of project I want and the art, I just fill whatever artist role needs to be done for that project. Mm So with Let Me Love Me, you know, it was, um, I came up with that idea, um, I think January 1st of um, last year, just thinking about, you know, we were all protesting um, around police brutality and around all of this, like, just, you know, messed up stuff that was happening. (laughs) And, um, And I just noticed, like, all my friends, like, were grinded down. Like, every single person, especially all my friends of color, were just, like, not even able to take care of themselves because they were taking care of everyone else, right? So they were, like, going to work and then right after work going to marches, um, going to sleep for, like, a couple hours and waking up and planning, like, protests, right? And it was just this thing of, which is really necessary, but um, I wanted to create a place in which we could talk about our bodies not as... um sites of negative spaces or not only when they were disposed of, but talk about the beauty of them when they're living um, and really have that be authored by the people who, who you know, by people of color. So just say, like, I'm going to start taking photos of people of color and we're going to have this, like, hour-long conversation before we start just about them, you know, and about, like, how they their journeys with self-love, um, how they learn to love their bodies, um, what their body means to them, and then take, take these photos, um, and just give them all the photos for free, right? Mm-hmm. So it was kind of a thing that I just did as um, wanting to give carve out spaces in which we could appreciate people and build um, communities of color like that. Um, and it it was really, it's really been a dope experience just because I've gotten close to a lot of people who yeah. I like, you know, was uh, associates with or was like, you know, we were friends, but not necessarily on the same level. Um, and now I, I feel like I'd super love and super rock with a lot more people than I did before. Um, Why do you think we do this podcast? That's literally like <laughs> the whole idea. You have so many more friends now. Right, right. You have no idea. Our friends. <laughs> friends are friends. <laughs> but, but I think specifically something that's beautiful about the project is that not only, if I'm not mistaken, was it people of color, but it was predominantly women and, and queer people mm-hmm. of color. Um, and so how when you add those double and tripled layers of, of marginality, yeah. right? Like, how, did, how do you feel once you put them all together, right? Yeah. Like, and, 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 like, look at your, the project on a macro level. Right. How do you feel that that has shaped, you know, kind of some of the common threads that have been coming through? Right. That's a good question. I mean, and I think, like, the queer and woman of color thing was absolutely accidental, you know? It's because I'm a That's queer true. woman of color. And, <laughs> um, and you know, I have a—I'm in a group me thread with a lot of different women of color in Chicago. Um, and— and women in, uh, in Chicago. And I basically just asked. And I didn't know a lot of these people. I just was, like, added into the group. So I kind of knew them, like, at parties and stuff. Mm. And all everybody was like, I want to have my photo taken, you know. Um, and, and through that, it kind of spread. But some of the things that I noticed, like, just looking at the project as a whole is, like, how deeply messed up it is that people are made to believe that their bodies are not worthy. Like, mm. so many people have said that, like— family members or community people have said to them something about their skin, either it being too dark or too skinny or too thick or too whatever, um, just made them feel like they weren't worthy enough. And that's so upsetting to think like you have a whole generation of people or whole like swarms of people who have been made to feel this way, yet like are some of the most beautiful people ever. Like, you know, just looking at all the photos when they're up against each other, like everybody is like stunning, you know, and like in their own way and just like 
their personality really shines through in their photos. Like some people are like, you know, um, really funny and you can like tell by the way that they're posing or like whatever, even if they're naked. Um, And they're mostly nude photos, right? They're mostly nude. Yeah. And so the the way that I define nude is just kind of like whatever makes people feel vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And so some people like would do it with underwear on. Some people would get, you know, I would like leave for a second to get my camera and come back and they're like butt naked in my, um, in my house. Just like, where do I go? You know? And I was like, great, this is awesome. Um, So I think, (laughs) so I think that it's really, um, um, it, a lot of those threads were just about people like kind of struggling with the same things. And it made me really be like, I really wish that we could talk about it more openly, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think one of my dreams for the project, like this isn't um, anywhere in the works or anything, but just something that I thought of is like, I would love to wheat paste these photos huge in like predominantly white neighborhoods just to like mess <laughs> with, you know, yeah. just to be, as and their quotes. Yeah, yeah, as a disruption, as a thing of just being like, yo, like all these people, like all these people are beautiful and like all of these people have stories and they're not just um, hypersexualized images. Like you can be naked and not be a hypersexualized yeah, image. Absolutely. And I think that that's what the project does a lot is is that. I, I think the like key theme when as I've like received mm-hmm. it and, and observed it um, would be vulnerability, mm-hmm. right? I think that the beauty of it uh, is rooted in the fact that you were able to have access to these powerful people mm-hmm. and they were so vulnerable. Um, so so the, the, I guess the question I have is twofold and you can answer either or both. <laughs> <laughs> or neither. Or neither. We could just, just keep it moving. Um, so first, um, off that, that idea, you're, you're saying of that common thread of everyone mm-hmm. made to feel less worthy mm-hmm. um, and, and made to feel, you know, less than or, or have mm-hmm. issues with their body and image. Putting that together and, and having the access to, like, put all those conversations next to each other. Mm-hmm. Have have you been wrestling to what do you think the root cause of that is in our society or what's causing that? Mm-hmm. Right. And obviously, you can't have the answer. For yeah. That, but where are you in mm-hmm. like wrestling with why this is so common? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and what about this is the second part? Yeah. And like what about vulnerability? Um gets us to that that powerful right. point right like of, of communication right what what right. what is that layer that that is blocking us from having the type of communication right. and conversation that it's that it looks like you were able to have right i think like with that was lo- a lot <laughs> I'm gonna take a drink of water. <laughs> Tap it out, man. Yeah. Um i think with vulnerability um it's such a hard thing cuz um what, why I really enjoy artwork that stems from vulnerability or people just being vulnerable is there's nothing to hide, right? Mm-hmm. If you see, if you actually have nothing to hide, you start to um, make the world cater to you versus catering to the world, right? Like if you're like, man, like yeah, um, I was raped or this thing happened, um, and you're not afraid, or you stop being so afraid to say those things, and you start to demand that those things be heard, suddenly you have the power in a in a situation where you were formerly powerless. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a really um, important thing. And in our society, especially, like, with men and masculine people, like, dang, you cannot be vulnerable, right? Like, there is, like, just all of this um, fear around it and, like, hyper fear. And I think part of my um, poetry teaching practice, too, is just to normalize vulnerability, you know, mm-hmm. just to say, like, it is okay. It is okay to cry. Like, there's no weakness in crying. It's okay to be scared. It's okay to have these feelings and to own them, you know, and to kind of navigate through them. Um, and part of the stuff around um, the way that we're taught to see ourselves is I think like living in a white supremacist patriarchal world, you know, like when um, when you don't see images of yourself represented positively in the media, when you don't, when all you see is negative stuff, like that's that's going to mess with you. And and just thinking about myself, you know, I'm Kashmiri and Pakistani um, and Muslim. And growing up, like, there was nobody, you know, there was nobody in um, predominant media that, that had anything that looked slightly like me, you know. And there was also all, anytime people were talked about, it was talked about in regards to September 11th or terrorism. And so it was really this fear of just being like, dang, like, yeah. um, is this all I am? Is this all my people are, you know? And I think that takes a lot of unlearning to go back and say, like, that's not what we are or, um, you know, to kind of be able to hold your history in any type of nuance. So, yeah. And I think also like in that learning and unlearning uh, is like learning how to search and dig for representations that are not being handed to you 
And, yeah. and that, I mean that, and that's a bird, like that's work that not everyone has to do. Um, so, and that's like a sign of all those words that you mentioned, yeah. but learning to do that is also like a, can give power. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, where can I find the piece that rings true and makes me feel okay about myself? Uh, yeah. Do you like, can, can you think of any, whether it's like contemporary now or probably like when you were younger moments where you were like, oh, this might not be being broadcast to the world, but like, I got it. And it makes me feel okay about like, uh, who I am encounter to all those, uh, terrible depictions. Yeah. I mean, I think, um, something that like I do with my poetry a lot is like, uh, when I, so I'm an orphan and I grew up, my, my parents died when I was really young and I was raised by a lot of different people. Sorry to hear that. Yeah, that's okay. I mean, I think like it's a thing of, it used to, Sometimes parents just die, you know, like sometimes they just die and it's okay to like just, you know, have that happen. But I think also like that was something for me that really tied into vulnerability was mm. I felt like couldn't say that or I wasn't allowed to say that. Or when I did, like people got really like, oh, uncomfortable or something. And it's like, no, like people die. And, and you know. um, Not sometimes. They actually always. Yeah, like always. Like everyone's going to die. But also it's okay. This to, is the second <laughs> time we've had to, to say that. <laughs> but it's also, Folks, if you're listening out there, a public service announcement, we all die. We all die. Um, but um, Your daily message from HBK 88.5 FM. <laughs> but there's also um, just such amazing things about having grown up as an orphan. Like sometimes like adults, you're bad at raising kids, you know, mm. and sometimes it's good to be like, dang, I'm really glad that like I didn't. I didn't have that, you know, or I, I got, like, this other thing. Um, sometimes it's also really sad, you know, so it's kind of a balance. Um, mm, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I, I, I never thought of that. Like, you're able to have maybe a more objective relationship to, yeah. like, adults. Because mm-hmm. um, th- th- they're not yours. Observe them differently. Right. That's very you're just kind of like, and, and they're not responsible to you in the same way, and you're not responsible to them. So there's kind of a thing of just being, like, constantly observing people. Like, I, I didn't live with um, an adult from the ages of, like, 13 to on, you know? Wow. And, like, I, I remember um, I was doing – I lived in New Orleans for a summer working with this uh, – with a teaching program, and they put me in a, like, homestay, and I was in a homestay with um, – an adult essentially and I was like eight, I think I was 18 at that point and it was I realized it was the first time I was living with an adult since I was 13 and wow. I was like yo this isn't <laughs> this isn't gonna work like you know yeah. and um, I had to leave the home stay just because I was like I can't hand, like I'm just I'm you know I don't know how to do so, this. <laughs> so you, you probably use the the word orphan. Have you felt there to be any stigma with that word? Is that is that is that something you were able to grow into being comfortable with, or yeah. is it something you've always I think, been able to stand on? I think definitely because there is um there is you know I think when you say orphan, people automatically assume things around. Um, oh, so you grew up in an orphanage or you were adopted. Like, people have asked me, like, oh, so who are you adopted by? And I was like, I was never adopted. You know, like, I um, also, like, I was, me and my sisters were doing something really shady where we were, we had a legal guardian, but we weren't living with adults and we weren't, you know, we were kind of being passed around a lot. So mm-hmm. um, it was this, it was a strange existence because you're kind of a guest everywhere you go until yeah. you're not, right? Until you're, like, capable to be able to have jobs or whatever, um, but my sister like was a hut like a super hustler and she um when we were young, like she studied for her real estate exam, not because she had any interest in real estate, but because she was like, I wanna be avail like um able to have any job that's gonna get me like fast money for like our predicament anytime. And it was just right. this thing of just being like you know, my, we we worked from a really young age. Like we were working, we were um getting money and stuff like that. And to just have these women, like, you know, my I, I grew up with two sisters. To have two sisters who were just super powerful and super like dedicated, like they were fighters. You know, like um, they they Their fought. Older sisters. What do you say? These are your older sisters. Older, yeah. So my eldest sister is three years older than me, and then my other sister is a year and a half. So she's right in the middle. So we're all very, very close in age and have a lot of the same friends. But they um, they just knew, like it was like they knew that they had to rise, otherwise we were going to be like split up, you know, mm-hmm. or that like something was going to happen to one of us that wasn't going to be okay. So they just and being the youngest, like I was even super shielded, even though I was an orphan, like by my sisters just like hustling you know and working and like doing all this stuff yeah and they knew they knew from like they knew I really loved art and so my sister would like be like yo like you should do this like you should join the theater company and like I'll work a little bit more so that we can like have groceries or whatever or this thing um and it was this kind of interesting thing where like 
they just never um they they like believed in me <laughs> You know, <laughs> like they were like, oh, you love art and like you should just go do this. I'm like, we're, we'll figure it out. And like still kind of are like that. You know, like my sister gets on me sometimes, especially around tax season, you know, as an artist, like where you have to like pay back all your taxes. When you have a stack of 1099s. Like, yeah. And, and you're just yeah, like, what am I going to do with this? Um, <laughs> and my sister is like, you know, maybe like there, you should think about like how you want to structure your career. So that's like not a stressful time, but, <laughs> but is always super proud of me and is always like, what do you need? Do you need money? Do you need this thing? And I'm like, no, I'm like an adult, you know? Like, I'm fine. Um, right. But it, but she's just always has my back. And, you know. And it's like a different form of that. You said, like, they believed in you. Like, it's a, also a different kind of belief than you get necessarily from a parent who, like, it's basically like you're told your parent is, like, supposed to believe. That doesn't mean that yeah. they always do, but that you're kind of told you, that like, they're earn supposed to. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've had to earn my belief from a lot of people. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I want to get a little bit into, you know, we, we kind of touched on a couple of the different, like, spots you've lived. But just kind of give a, like, an overall arc Aware. Um, yeah, the different steps along the way. I just want to make sure I get the time. Yeah. Right. So my family, uh, I'm going to kind of bring it back even. So mm-hmm. my family, uh, my mom's side of the family was from Kashmir, which is a disputed territory between Pakistan and India. Mm-hmm. And during partition, which is in like kind of an insane history that right. a lot of people don't know about, um, uh, my family moved into Pakistan um, because they were Muslim. So they forcefully moved. Yeah, yeah, forcefully moved to And I think that also just like, um, I'm reading a lot more about partition right now, but like a statistic just off the bat about partition is um, the 14 million people were for- forcibly moved, um, which is one of the largest uh, like migration statistics. I think and this is from Kashmir into this, this is from India. all of all of South Asia. So okay. like Bangladesh, um, India, Pakistan, Kashmir, all the surrounding areas, because essentially when Britain left colonized wise um you know they just left, um, um, <laughs> on, on their colonization <laughs> on their colonization tip um uh india <laughs> just like devolved into uh partition you know and it was um a lot of uh it's also one of the highest areas of ethnic cleansing that's happened um mm-hmm. on all sides and it, it's a really brutal history um that's never really talked about yeah, I, never, think, I don't think i've ever heard so, that word yeah i mean basically like so and you know a billion times more about <laughs> yeah. this than i but like basically Pakistan being a uh, like a fully like founded religious state is the idea. Yes. So like the idea was basically all the Muslim folks would go to Pakistan, and uh, there would be no more in India. Basically, yeah. and obviously, like mm. the world is way more complicated yeah. than that, <laughs> and the borders are complete. But right. yeah, like that fracturing, right? Splitting families apart, splitting, splitting families like apart. properties apart. Like it, yeah. So my family is Kashmiri, and then also Punjabi. So we mm-hmm. Punjab is an area that was fought over and split in half, as well as Kashmir. Wow. So half of Punjab is in India, half of it is in Pakistan. And you can't pass between. You can't, yeah, in the same way that, like, Peshawar, it, half of it is in Pakistan and half of it is in Afghanistan. So it's this thing where the borders are very weird and not um, don't make sense. But um, 14 million people were forced to migrate. Um, and just to put that into, like, a little bit of perspective— um, I think the transatlantic slave trade, 9 to 20 million people were were forced to migrate um, over the course of a couple hundred years. And in partition, we're talking about, you know, a couple months um, that, that that happened, which was just so it's insane. Insane. It's violent. <laughs> it's so it's, violent. Like, like, let's just call it that. And, and so something I, I think about a lot um, as you were like, as you referenced post 9-11 American mm-hmm. consciousness, right, uh, is the connection between the otherization and the the, the criminalization of, yeah. of, of black and brown people globally, yeah. right? And so domestically, globally. if we want to call it that, yeah. um, the the idea of the thug, right. you know, right. Right, ver- versus the idea of the terrorist, mm-hmm. and how structurally, um, yeah, and like discursively, that's yeah. a good word. Yeah, how, how it's used in discourse, yeah, uh, is like the same thing, right? Like the right. way Superintendent McCarthy would say. Thugs and gangs is the same way that like Donald Rumsfeld would say like insurgents and terrorists, right? right? Um, and it's often the ideas are created by the power structures that are using those ideas to right. oppress people, definitely. Um, and, and so, as someone who had who you know living in Chicago and definitely being connected to um, a, a black art scene, mm-hmm. right? And I know the scene is greater than that, right. but but it, uh, specifically you are connected mm-hmm. to a lot of black artists. H- do you often make connections of of those two experiences having 
being yeah. influenced and formed so heavily by both? Definitely. And I, I think so. And I think, so for me, um, uh, solidarity is super important. Like, I, I think that all people, black and brown people, are super, um, they're just not given their fair share globally, you know? <laughs> like, even in their countries that they're from, like, right. they're not given. And I think that that's messed up, right? And um, I think that when we think about solidarity or, like, making um, connections, all of our liberation is tied to each other. And and I think, and that goes for queer people, that goes for, you know, all of that. And um, because if one of us is not allowed to be free, then all of us are not, you know, because there's some structure that's not, that's not working. Um, but the way that, um, that that's, you know, and I think that that, and when I was in college, I studied Africana studies. And I think that I've always been uh, really intent on solidarity work, you know, and in my artistic practice, creating solidarity work too. And I don't mean solidarity in terms of um, like an appropriative solidarity, you know, where it's like, oh, we're all the same. Like, I mean, like, <laughs> no, we all like, but we can all fight for each other, you know, and we can all listen to each other and then like really, um, really work with each other to make sure our needs are being met. And I think that that's where art becomes such a crucial moment to just be like, no, actually, like, if I'm listening, if I'm consuming, if I'm actively participating in your art, then I am um, in some ways, like, listening to you, yeah. your most vulnerable moments. Engaging your experiences. Yeah, yeah. and not not on some, like, oh, superficial, like, we go to the mall together type, you know, <laughs> thing. But, like, on some real, like, you know, and I think so, to go back to Daniel's question, my, my family m- moved to Pakistan, then moved to England, and then s- moved to New York. I was born in New York. My parents died in New York. I moved to... Um, Boston, and I was in between Boston and New York a lot, being raised by different mm-hmm. family members. I went to school in Providence. Um, when I was in Providence, I studied abroad in Jordan. Um, and then the year after school, I was on a Fulbright in Bosnia, and then I came to Chicago. Um, so I've interacted with a lot of different people. Yeah, and and wow. I think um, there's always like a fight to be had there's you know like when yeah. you create systems of power on a macro level there's just everyone's forgotten about like nation states are such a strange concept because right. they never actually represent the people they're about power and, and they're an active erasure of those people yeah and who, who they have been and what they make in the communities they build right and so you're always there's always gonna be um or not i don't know if this is like fatalistic but like we we will always have to fight for people you know and i think that what i'm interested in is like you really doing that um justice work of creating an equitable world um i don't know if we'll ever see it in any of our lifetimes you know um but there has to be something better right there has to be mm-hmm. something in which we're all free yeah. <laughs> I, I have to believe in that <laughs> otherwise what the hell are we doing right like otherwise it's just too depressing to like do anything but i'm i'm very committed to that and and that kind of belief of our freedom is all tied so i want to play a song and give us all a second to catch our breath um but it's not just any song and it, it's not to say that it's the same experience um but someone who has gotten me thinking about specifically uh a lot of what we've been discussing for the last half hour uh, is a rapper from New York named Heems, who mm-hmm. uh, is also uh, of his family's from the Punjab, and he grew up mm. in Queens. Uh, and he talks, you'll hear in this song, but he talks about like, um, you know what? I'll do my talk about it. We'll bring it up afterwards. <laughs> man, you you always up on it, man. You this always- is so. This, this is like literally. <laughs> I'm so glad you're This is the thing, but I've known this is like literally what we're talking about. Uh-huh. It's like what I want to uh-huh. write about forever. So before we go to that. <laughs> Let's listen. This song is called Patriot Act, uh, and it ends with basically a poem. Um, oh, and that's kind of what I want to build off of. You're listening to Ergo. <laughs> Don't you hate when poets talk about the poem? <laughs> Just say the poem. <laughs> no <Peace>. disclaimers. <laughs> Policing the people, Babylon. Policing the people, policing the people, Babylon. Policing the people. Yeah. Product of partition. Dripped in. Product for the stitching. Proud of superstitions. Got powder in the kitchen. Powerful of kitten. Superpowers be killing. America, Britain. Power for villains. Powerful positions. Power for the pigeons. Powder for the shillings. 
power for offshore drilling. Pirates plunder, pillage, killing civilians, counting currencies millions. Politics make victim for income. Parlor tricks, schism for system. Babylon policing the people. Take a man and they shift him. That Patriot Act. That's a privacy prison. That Pentagon. They vision is prison. Got what we asked for, someone to listen. Handcuffs, mother on phone. Jail cell, martyr who's stoned. Guard your home, neighbor with stones. Government drones, cookie cutter clones. Then the towers fell in front of my eyes. And I remember the principal said they wouldn't. And for a month they used my high school as a triage. And so we went to school in Brooklyn. And the city's board of ed hired shrinks for the students. And maybe I should have seen one. And from then on they called us all Osama. This old Sikh man on the bus was Osama. I was Osama, we were Osama. Are you Osama? And so we rushed to buy flags for our doors. Bright American flags that read, I am not Osama. And we ironed our polo shirts and we combed our hair. And we proudly paid our taxes. And we immediately donated to a local white politician and we yelled, I'm just like you, as quietly and calmly as we could. So as not to raise too much attention and be labeled a troublemaker and lose one's job. Like when my name was too long to pronounce at work and raise too much attention and I was labeled a troublemaker. So I changed it and we struck words like bomb from our vocabulary and airports changed to us forever where another blue uniform came to represent oppression undressing and another blue uniform came to represent stops and frisks depressing and our parents began to fear for our lives whenever we walked out the door because they read the news and another cab driver was beaten to death and yesterday more than 10 years later another man from the neighborhood was deported i went to expensive white people's school with his daughter for four years we read books and together we yelled i'm just like you but she won't get to correct her father's english at dinner anymore and the fbi harassed one of my dad's friends so much he packed up his stuff and took his family and they moved back to pakistan they would come at night they would wake them up and make a mess and the mess upset his wife giant metal birds in the sky brought my parents here and made things confusing and then crashed into those buildings and made things confusing but i guess it's okay because my dad wasn't deported and i still get to correct his english at dinner so he doesn't raise too much attention and get labeled a troublemaker that was Heem's Patriot Act, the final track off of his project from last year, E Pray Thug. I strongly recommend go listening to that you should go listen to it. It's uh maybe it's just on some like being from New York in that time, mm. but it like served at least for me as like a really important jump off point to start considering both like my own trauma around that and then also like the trauma of all the things that happened afterwards to other yeah. people. Um yeah, just to connect the dots, like, what are you, what are you thinking? <laughs> no. The worst question I've ever asked. No, 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 no. I think it's, um, I mean, I, I really like that song, and I super bang, bang with what he was saying. Um, and I just think that uh, the way that America flattens people down is so interesting because mm-hmm. actually South Asia is like hyper, hyper regional focus because, in part, because of partition, in part, because of ethnic cleansing and violence, mm-hmm. right? Um, so. It's, you know, when you say, my uncle used to say this thing where, and I was tweeting about this a little while ago, but he would say this thing where he was like, what is Pakistan? Like um, two kilometers up the road, they speak a different language. They have a different culture. Like, you know, this thing is fake, you know? Um, And Mm. I thought he was just being cheeky, Um, but it is, you know, like all nation states are like a lot of the way that the identities are formed are in opposition to other people, especially in the region of South Asia. You know, it's like. India was and Pakistan were formed in opposition um, as like, this is the Hindu state. This is the Muslim state, you know, um, and and that kind of continues and fragments and and prevents those things of real solidarity being built. Um, 
As a legacy of colonialism. Yeah, as a legacy. You know, it's the same thing that happened in Rwanda. Like, the histories are are alarmingly similar. Um, And then you come to... America and people see your skin color, you know, and they they flatten it and they're like, this is what it is. You're now you're just a monolith brown, yeah. um, which in some ways is frustrating and in some ways is deeply useful for <laughs> for solidarity building, you know, and to be like, yeah, like it doesn't matter if you're Muslim. If you look brown, you're going to get followed like, you know, or you're going to get like. Uh, harass, especially post September 11. Like it doesn't matter what you are because um, that that just happens. I remember reading an article. I think about like um, a, a, an Asian man. I can't remember where he was from, but he was beaten to death by a bunch of white people because they thought he was Japanese and he wasn't actually Japanese. In Detroit, in uh, in the 70s, mm-hmm. there was a bunch of auto workers. He was, I think, Korean. I can't. I think he was Korean too. Yeah, but it was like in response to the Japanese automakers. Yeah. yeah. And so they beat him because they mistook him for something, mm-hmm. right? And I think that that happens with any non-white race, right? It's like people... Um, are quick to think of you as one thing, and they don't actually have the knowledge for the difference, <laughs> the differences in those things. But you're you kind of bear the weight of your skin in a way. Well, that's interesting. How, how you? I don't want to misquote you, but like basically saying the usefulness of mm-hmm. it, uh, of like the transformative potential of yeah. oppression or oppressive systems. That's mm-hmm. that's really interesting. Like when you think about it, the cops killing people right is actually uniting people yeah. the way they weren't. Right. Three to five years ago, right? right. And, and like, if you extrapolate that, like, mm-hmm. across the globe, that's that's really interesting. I don't even know how to like bring a question out of that, but but the it's the, a it's the, a the thing, yeah. Potential I've, of solidarity from intersected right. struggles, right? And I think that that's like the thing America has gifted us in a weird way <laughs> is like the potential to actually unite against these small small divisions and to look at the bigger picture as like, right. hey, like now you know. We're, we're going to ha- show up for your marches. We have your back. And that's not, I mean, we have a lot of work to do to really get to the level where of solidarity that we need to and like the ways that we can fight for each other. Um, but I think it's a small thing that I've noticed, you know, is mm-hmm. like, um, you know, I wrote a poem about this, like, so in, in just South Asia, the way that the, you know, um, Pakistan used to be both Pakistan and Bangladesh. And then um, there was a civil war that then became the 1970 war for um, the liberation of Beng- Bangladesh, um, in which the Pakistani military com- committed mass atrocity, you know, um, mass atrocity, like ma- mass rape, mass genocide in Bangladesh. Um, but growing up, like my friends, my you know, some of my closest friends were, one of my friends was Indian, but she was Punjabi on the <clears throat> other side of partition. And my other friend was Bangladeshi, her name was Nabila. And we all didn't know like we were all just like friends you know right. and it was probably more painful for our the the generation above us to to like right. interact with each other but for us we were chilling like mm-hmm. we were we we were just the brown girls that you know were told they smelled like curry like you know like yeah, right. that's that's yeah. what we were and i think that that's a really interesting thing of like um of living in the history of the violences that have happened to your family and how you can navigate the world by forgiving but not forgetting you yeah, know i mean um, i think that's super important right is because those uh those traumas don't di- or those legacies don't disappear when you show up here they're just like the the culture here erases them but they mm-hmm. or pushes them to the side but it, they don't go away especially like like i'm a big believer that trauma gets passed down through family yeah um so and can be processed, like you can do something with it and you can like build, like in those friendships, that could be a site to like eventually start to work right. through some of that stuff. Right. Um, but I think you made a really important distinction earlier, which is that that solidarity doesn't mean uh, we're all the same. Yeah. It means we're all standing Fighting. together. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, I would love to like see how, how this we can like get this conversation like into how this has impacted your art, right? Cause mm-hmm. you're coming with such a, a, a powerful worldview and kind of in like the solidarity piece we're talking about now, like how I kind of parallel that to like my experience mm-hmm. or my history, right? Is that like segregation and mass incarceration, mm-hmm. right? Like mm-hmm. form jazz and hip hop and right. like the spoken word tradition that, mm-hmm. that we all interact with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so from, from you having, been in such close proximity to all of these like kind of different 
world mm-hmm. situations. Mm-hmm. Um, how does that get into your writing, right? Like when did when did that is that how you picked up the pen or did picking up the pen yeah. get you towards having these type of right. thoughts? Well, I think that um Originally, I started writing uh, because I would write Harry Potter sex fan fiction. That was just like, <laughs> 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 could you send those our way, please? <laughs> that's literally how I started in high school. I just loved Harry Potter. That's how I'd write. Um, but um, I think that eventually uh, my writing started being, or I think of the way I think of myself as an artist is that my medium is actually community. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. about like, you know, the Let Me Love Me project is uh, is actually based in those com- is about communities, about creating those those connections versus the finished product. You know, um, I think that was a thing of like growing up. My um, in theater, I did theater when I was in high school. We we really had a solid community. It was like we were the theater kids, and it was kind of like a cult. You know, um, in the same way that when I got to college, we were the spoken word kids, and it was like a cult. Like you just like loved each other, and we lived together, and we just you know, oh man, um, <laughs> we were just all in each other's business all the time. And I think that um, that is something that has continued. Is I I search for art because I search for a deep sense of community. You know, um, and in my writing, um, I started writing as a performer, first coming through theater and then, you know, being on the stage. Um, But then really kind of started to think about words and like taking it seriously, both on the page and as a performer. Um, But also getting rid of that distinction of like that weird, like academic page poetry and the spoken word poetry. You know, I think that like sometimes academics like say spoken word as like a racist way of like devaluing that work. Same way comics say Def Jam as yeah. like a way of saying like that. Yeah. Yeah, that other thing. Um, the same way that <laughs> sportscasters say athletic for the black athlete and gritty for the white athlete. These code words. Yeah. Um, and so just thinking about you got another one that feels like you got one more. <laughs> rule, rule of threes in comedy. <laughs> okay. But I think um, just thinking about like I write and I create art because I want I want people who look like me or have felt like me to have a place that they feel themselves reflected, right? So that that's why I create art. Like I'm I'm working on a web series right now that's called Brown Girls. Um, mm. It's only people of color in the cast, um, and it's all you know. And it's really just about being like we're not represented well, and like wanting to create spaces in which we can be uh, where where people can feel like they actually see themselves and not just see like a terrorist number one or like thug number two, yeah. you know, on on screen or in poems. Yeah, so we were talking about this a little bit actually before the show started, and I want to make the connection. So it's one thing to to write or create or produce with that being the intention. And then there's also the work, and this is the piece that I think is really, it's also really hard, is like, how do you actually create space for those folks to be in the audience? Yeah. Um, and we were talking a little bit about like, like, is there ever a time on a big-ass stage where the people performing are not performing to the white gaze. Yeah, that's so real. <laughs> so let's forget the big ass stage part, but like where are a couple instances for you where you felt like if this is the goal, like it, it's clicked? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, so. so you know, um, being Muslim is so weird. <laughs> and I think part of it is because you're always afraid of the white gaze or the people, but then you're also afraid of other Muslims because you don't know if they're going to think you're like haram mm-hmm. for like having tattoos or whatever, yeah. you know? Um, and so there was a, um, a podcast in Pakistan that interviewed me a few weeks <laughs> ago and the girls, uh, you know, she was talking to me and she was just like, I just love Pluto shits on the universe, you know? And I was like, that's sorry, that's my poem, sorry. Which, if Uh, you don't know that poem, is, like, the greatest. But I'm sorry, I swore. But I have to, it's part of the show. We want it, we want that action. um, Come get us, what's up? We here, come see me, 57. To hear another, (laughs) to hear another Muslim girl being like, especially a Muslim girl in Pakistan who lives in Pakistan, who had right before been telling me, like, she was trying to create a a place for poetry, but it was hard because the sexes are hard to, uh, it's like separation, you know, yeah. like you can't really have men and women in the same space or people get freaked out yeah. about it. Um, and so she was talking about that. And then she goes, you know, I love this poem. And it was just so funny to me that like, she loves this poem, you know, and that there's like, these, she was telling me that they were passing it around her office. All the Muslim girls were passing around <laughs> to each other. And that's just hilarious, you know, to yeah. think like, oh, that's that's that moment, you know, when suddenly like the people who who really look like you, who you hope to be writing for are the ones that are reading it, you know, and yeah. the ones that are responding to it. And I think um, 
that that's where I've seen it the most, you know, is like, I don't, I, when a lot of, I'm lucky that a lot of the the communities I work in are communities of color. So I go into high schools, it's all black and brown people, you know, that's who I care about. And mm-hmm. so, um, if I'm not entertaining them, like I need to do something better. Right. Like, and I think that that that's, uh, I'm, I'm really lucky in that sense, you know? And to that question that you brought up or that idea of that tension, right. Of like one, the, the fear, like the, the tension with the white gaze, but also of like not be, being very aware of like how other Muslim folks will respond. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you, that's just, yeah, that's <laughs> like a tension I think would be really tricky to mm-hmm. like balance. How have you felt that like evolve for you? And are you, are there still things that like one, you wouldn't write about in a certain way or you might write about, but you wouldn't perform or you mm. might perform over here, but not over there. Stuff like that. Yeah. I think definitely that they're, you know, it's just about being comfortable about like what, like I have a, you know, a poem called Haram, which is about body hair. It's about like the way that my auntie like basically saw my sister's like pussy hair and was like, that's against Allah. Like, you know, and it's just like a really funny poem about this. But, um, but I think that like, <laughs> sometimes I get really nervous about like performing that in front of um, other Muslim people. Cause I'm like, Oh, are they going to think I'm like being sacrilegious or right. blasphemous or something? Um, and you know, my friend Denez Smith said this thing to me where he just was like, are Muslim people not allowed like, are you, do Muslim people not have sex? Are they not, do they not have bodies? Like, why, why are you worried about that when what you're doing is you're just basically widening the definition a little bit for people, you know, versus like having, when people think of Muslim, they think of one thing, you're you're making that a little bit of a bigger definition. Yeah. So the work you're doing is important and you have to go do it. Um, And I, and I, I rock with that a lot because I think the more nuance we can give any identity, the more we um, combat like white supremacy, right? Mm -hmm. Like the flattening of us. If we're able to say like, hey, like, no, I'm Muslim, but like, I swear all the time or I like do the, you know, I have how many tattoos? I don't even know. Like, you know, um, that then makes a more, um, that, that's a harder thing for white supremacy to reckon with, you know? Right. I like I like the idea of flattening. Mm-hmm. You've used that a lot. That's cool. I, I might borrow that. Uh, I, I want to pivot real quick because we are we are burning through this hour um, to talk about right. Like just listening to you here, right? Like you are mm-hmm. you are a gift, uh, and, and so I, I know that your art um, has been used in teaching and in practice, mm-hmm. and, and you engage youth. Um, how, how does specifically being in like this very Chicago? context yeah. which is like chicago is a, a big city but it's a very insulated yeah. city in terms of like our worldview yeah. um how does that affect your teaching and you know also you know mention the fact that you know this is your month in residence yeah and, and you work at l uh-huh. like all yeah. of those things um i love chicago i think that chicago is such an amazing place um for artists you know it's one of the most collaborative cities I've ever been in where people, when they see your talent, instead of thinking of you as competition or wanting to like wipe you out, they want to work with you, um, which I think is rare and beautiful. And I think is what leads to a lot of the amazing art that that is coming out of Chicago. Like Chicago's art is incredible on a music, on a music level. It's just like rocking everywhere, but on poetry to, to painting, to photography, to everything, like people are just holding their own and really creating these communities. Um, and I think that the, the art is interesting because Chicago is such a segregated city and, um, our artistic spaces of sharing become one of the few desegregated places of the city. Mm -hmm. You know, it becomes one of the places in which people are, um, are, would at, will will travel for and will break that segregation. And I think YCA is an example of that, you know, Young Chicago Authors and the open mic that we do every Tuesday. Um, and I think it's really funny for me to be a host because I'm so awkward, you know, <laughs> I'm just like the most awkward person. So um, I'm always like super self-conscious hosting, um, but I really love the youth, you know, and I really love working with my teams and working at YCA. Um, and I, And I think that I just am always impressed by their art, you know, like yeah. to see the the art that's coming out of um, the students, like they're just killing it, you know, on every, like I just saw, um, I just saw a, um, a short film called uh, Pronouns, yeah. w- uh, which has uh, patches in it. Yeah. Oh my. Yeah, they're amazing. Oh my God. Like that is an incredible film. And so it was filmed partially at YCA. Yeah. It just got picked up for Tribeca Film Festival. Mm-hmm. Is it available to see anywhere? Can no, I just, no uh, we were we were talking about, yeah, I got the plug. No, it's because <laughs> of curiosity. I, I um, help run curiosity. So it's a way of thinking about, okay, how we're, are we going to screen it at some point or how can we have a conversation around it? But even the quality of the footage, like, 
it's amazing. And I, I think that it's this thing of, um, it's super interesting because the students are creating artwork on such a high level, you know, or they're part of artwork on such a mm-hmm. high level um, that I'm excited. I'm super excited to see what comes out of Chicago, you know, in the coming years. So I want to draw a, a connection here. So I know just from doing very cursory reading, uh, like what and you mentioned that you were in Bosnia. What's cursory mean? I don't know. Like, <laughs> just like of the like, like surface level. Okay, true. I mean, you used a bigger word than <laughs> no, that, right? No, I, I, I appreciate not, you asking, not, I'm just like, man. Absolutely. Accountability. <laughs> all about that. Um, <laughs> um, but I know just a little bit of what you were doing in Bosnia that first year or the, that mm-hmm. year that you spent there exploring the way like people create uh, theater and art mm-hmm. in response to or coming out of uh, violence and trauma mm-hmm. and uh, I'm thinking about like were you anticipating when you were getting ready to come here like being able to draw parallels because of the like state violence and other kinds of violence in the city was that part of the thinking and is that like a true or false dichotomy yeah not on that level you know when I was coming here I knew um I wasn't even thinking really, you know, because sometimes, like, especially when you're abroad, you're like, oh, America's so great. Like, they don't have, you know, we have air conditioning. Like, it's great. And then <laughs> um, you come and then you're like, no, like, this is, you know, and like, it's one of the most violent countries for especially black people, in right? The history it's like, of the world. yeah, in the history of the world, you know, like, um, and, um, and that's not okay. And people don't, and it's, you know, people don't know that. You know, a lot of like white people just don't know that, that that's like a, actual statistics you know um and and so uh i wasn't thinking about it like that and i think i had like a little bit of um worry that you know i'm always worried about trafficking in new spaces because i don't want to um like take up a mantle that i you know or like as i'm a transplant and everywhere i go i'm always a guest from you know from the original days of orphaning like i'm a guest in everyone's home um and i don't ever want to speak when someone else could be doing the speaking that would have a better idea. Um, but I think that, you know, having lived here for a few years, I see it really strongly, you know, like the way that um, that violence is memorialized through art, the way that art, when it becomes um, the reiteration of that trauma versus like a moving past that, you know, or like a, a triggering part of the trauma versus moving past. I think that there needs to be more public space dedicated to police brutality and grieving and, and like actually holding spaces that are, you know, like what would happen if one of the fancy parks downtown were actually um, a memorialization for the people who were killed by police brutality. And then that was an open space of mourning for for all of the people who are affected by it, you know? So were there examples in studying it when you were abroad where you yeah. saw places that did that yeah. better? Because, like, we can learn from the world. Yeah. Right? I think Sarajevo is that place. Um, Sarajevo is a, is a amazing city. Um, it's also really intense because it's, like, 40% unemployment in Bosnia right now. So there's a lot of stagnation. Um, it, the, the government is technically under ceasefire still from the war. Um, um, and ethnicity is written into the Constitution in a way that's problematic. Yeah. Um, but all of their parks are national grieving sites. So oh, um, wow. all of the park – there's this huge park that's um, – dedicated to all of the children who were murdered in the war. Um, mm. And it's it's the one of the biggest parks there. And part of it is overwhelming because you're just kind of constantly reminded by it. But it's also a place like I, I would just see people come sit and grieve, you know. Um, there was also this project called the Sarajevo Red Line, which was on the 20th anniversary of the siege of Sarajevo. And they put out um, – an elevated train that went from one to the other, and there was. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, but they put out um, chairs, red chairs that um, stretched the whole city um, hmm. maiden street. That represented, like, I think each chair represented like a thousand people who had died um, or something. Oh, wow. And and you got in front of the um, children's park. They put small chairs for all the children who died. You know, and everybody didn't know it was going to happen. And then everybody just, all their work immediately just let them go. And people started putting out letters to their family members who had died on the chairs or candy or, and then when you got to the childhood chairs, like there were stuffed animals that were kept for 20 years. There were, you know, candy, there were laminated letters, there were pictures of these kids. And it was really intense. And it was a whole day for grieving. Like, everybody was grieving publicly, openly with each other. Um, And I think that that is really beautiful and not done enough, you know? And I think that the way that we can use harness art and public art to create sites of grieving are really important, especially in the city of Chicago. Yeah. So let's let's go make some stuff. Yeah. super exciting. Let's, uh, wow. Let's just, just like, change the whole script. (laughs) 
<laughs> so we got a, 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 I don't even know if I want to do, but all right. First things first, uh-huh. right? Accountability is like a, a core value here mm-hmm. at Ergo Radio. Mm-hmm. We don't we don't let it slide no more, all right? We, we're putting a stop <laughs> to all the, the fugazi activity that's been going on. So where we are starting- I love the word fugazi. Ain't it? Ain't it, ain't it beautiful? <laughs> so where we are starting this crusade uh-huh. is in one sect of the world that we feel has just run amok. Mm-hmm. And that is the genre of R&B. Mm. So what we do every week is we ask every guest to start beef with an R&B singer from any beef, oh, beef man. R&B singer from any era. Or you could do like an R&B like, like artist, right? Like, you know, if if you want to expand it like to the global context. Yeah. You know? uh, Can but, it be like a beef that's based out of love? Yes. <laughs> I prefer not, like it, but, I but, but it, it's it counts. Oh, okay. <laughs> let me think. <laughs> oh man, I I just love people too much. Because um, even really bad R and B, I love. Um, I think one of my beef. Okay, so I love deeply love Ashanti. Ooh, actually, I had posters of Ashanti all over my I wall. I love her. And, I was about 12 years old. In, in part because she had sideburns and she made me believe that I could be famous too because I had sideburns. <laughs> um, but I think my beef with her is like her her tracks where she tries to like reestablish herself that have been coming out lately, you know, because it's kind of like, dang. And also like longevity, you know, I was like, I, I thought her and Ja Rule were going to be in it for like ever and then they weren't. And I think that like I have some like resentment towards Ashanti for like not not coasting the forever that, dream. That's the biggest heartbreak of my life. It's <laughs> that that not sustained. That they did just do three shows together in California. I, I feel Ja Rule was actually her downfall. I oh really? Yeah, yeah. Because wow. he crashed and burned so so terribly. He got so he got pretty incredibly whack. Like yeah. Well, forever. he just like, got really hurt by by Fifty Cent. You know, like wounded. Yeah, like, yeah. But even wounded. before that, right? Like like he was. I don't know, man. He became an R&B singer, right? It's yeah. Like, no, but those songs are so beautiful. They are. are they? they are. This is this is going to be a Which cute, one? We, some of my... I've gone back and forth. Uh, if you can't love He was such an industry darling. Mesmerize is a great... Which one is Mesmerize? How I go? Mm. Oh, I can't sing. You don't got to sing it. Which, which, we'll, we'll put I it get in the outro. <laughs> All, right, All the folks at SoundCloud will... No, no. There's no, not going to be no Ja Rule in the outro. <laughs> what if I only... No, we're putting Ja... Actually... I, I'm taking a stand. I'm going to start beef with R&B singer Ja Rule. R&B singer Ja Rule. List. Yeah, that's why. It's been a pleasure bringing you here for the last 34 weeks. This is my resignation letter. Ja Rule you are, needs you a are place. Stand, you are a Ja Rule advocate? Is that I'm a happening? Ja Rule advocate. I hey, love Ja Rule. I love Ja Rule. This is not a democracy. <laughs> I'm hopping onto the Oh, other he's on the other mic. Oh, nah. I'm, I'm quitting first. Oh, this is going to be a heck of a saga week to week. We'll, we'll yeah, we're going to have to, We might change the game to like... We're just going to have to have a debate on Ja Rule. <laughs> oh, this is oh, amazing. Have a ty- a you ja should bring Ru- me and Safia. The, the Ja Rule oh. tiebreaker. So, quick shout out to Safia Hello, who's an amazing poet, an incredible person. I know, first of all, she's going to be on our side on this one. Oh, great. Ja Rule and Ashanti have been the soundtrack of the Breakbeat Poets tour. They're so good. I will stand up for Ashanti, but I draw the line in the sand at Ja Rule and Irv Gotti. Them guys were wild. Well, Irv Gotti's... Oh, anyway, okay. Yeah. We have... We will continue this conversation every week <laughs> at the Lighthouse. Every week. <laughs> this is not going to stop. <laughs> um, but before we get out of here, and we only have a couple minutes left, uh, you know, as we usually do, we end with some sort of live performance. Fat, you got a couple poems you're down yeah, to read for us? I do. Um, let me pull one up. Okay, so my poems are kind of short. So I think I'm going to start with a poem. I'm going to do two if we have time. If not, I'll just do one. But um, the, do you guys know what an LCD belt buckle is? <laughs> Are those the ones that used to be able to put your name on it? Yeah, you could like program like <laughs> words to to say things. So I used what to, have, time to be yeah, I used to have one. So this song, I mean, this poem is a love song to my LCD belt. You, me, my gold jacket, my cell phone clip, my white Air Force ones, and my gel down bangs were a team. When the rest of the world didn't want me, you hugged my hips lifeboat of leather you made home around my bony waist didn't complain when i took a knife to your skin and sliced a hole in you to fit you rhinestone studded and projecting my many faces i could be anyone i wanted not my whole name 
Fatima, long as hell and a reminder to all of the Prophet's perfect daughter and how they forgot to pray Fajr in the morning. I could be Fati, short and juicy, a bite and burst, a song for all the boys' lips. Or I could be Bambi, the name my big sister's friends gave me, motherless yet graceful, an echo of my mother Ghazala, a gazelle cut down too soon. I could be a whole sentence for the days I felt bold, master of magic fan fiction, queen of the room of requirement, goddess of the snow between my thighs. You made me news, made me flashing lights, same as the cafeteria monitor alerting the masses of canceled practices or reduced lunch prices. Everyone's eyes a spotlight on me, and with you, I was worthy of being seen. Wow. <laughs> wow, that was beautiful. Thank you. Oh, man. <laughs> I think well, we yeah, were... Oh wow! Yeah, we're out of time. That was no, that was that was so beautiful. Thank you. Uh, where can the good people in the audience find more of your work? Where can they, yeah, stay in tune with what you're making? Um, I think on social media. So my um, Twitter handle is at Oscar the Grouch, um, and then my website is my name www.fatimaoscar.com. Um, and yeah, so that's where and and louder than a bomb. So check out louder than a bomb. I'll be around all festival. Cool. Thank you all so much for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another strong voice from Chicago and beyond. And you, I do mean you, are beautiful. All right, y'all. Much love. We gone. <laughs>